Hi everyone, this is Brant Van Rokel, lead pastor of Christ City Kitsilano, and I want to let you know about a couple of things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us at 5th Avenue Cinema on Burrard Street at 9.30 a.m. We meet every Sunday morning for worship, word, and sacrament, and we'd love for you to join us there. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church Kitsilano is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to hear more about what God has called us to here in Kitsilano, then please reach out to me at brant at christcitychurch.ca or you can visit christcitychurch.ca slash Kitsilano. Scripture reading is taken from Exodus uh, chapter 3, verses 16 to 22 and 4, 1 to 17. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the afflictions of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I'll give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand, and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand, and caught it, and became a staff in his hand, that they, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Again the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside, the, inside your clock. And he put his hand inside his clock, and when he took it out, Behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, Put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs, or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is, is there not Aaron, your brother, he, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. 
Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he'll be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I'll be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand the staff with which you shall do the signs. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And uh, please pray with me as we come to this text. <clears throat> uh, Father, we come to you this morning and we come and we come needy. We come with deep insufficiency and inadequacy, with weakness and with sin, with great need. And yet in this text, Lord, we see the way that you have shown yourself to be sufficient to meet our every need. Lord, the way that you are God. You are Savior. You are good. Lord, we ask that you would work in us this morning, that you would convict us of our sin. You would draw us to yourself in faith, in obedience. Lord, that we would leave this place today eager to obey you, eager to serve you, to walk fully in the life that you have for us in Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. Well, I'm going to move this a little bit further back here. And again, my name's Brant. Uh, for those of you that haven't had a chance to, to meet me, um, welcome you here to our time in the Word. And we're looking now at this text, which occurs uh, following the one that we looked at last week when Moses has come to Mount Horeb and God has revealed himself to him. And as I um, was thinking about this message and how um, we'd begin it, I just have a little story for you to kind of set the stage. Um, and it's this. When I was, when I was young, I was uh, eight years old. And again, I think this is a, a farm parent thing to do. I grew up on a farm, but they bought me a motorcycle when I was eight. And uh, it was awesome. I recommend buying your eight-year-old's motorcycles. Um, but what happened was that when I would ride my motorcycle all the time around my yard and I'd inevitably invite my friends over, I would gain the skills, I could handle the thing. They'd come over and they'd get on my motorcycle and I'd teach them what to do and they would drive it straight into the tree or straight into the fence or straight into the barn. I'm like, what's going on? Like I can just, I can picture them in my head still grabbing onto the throttle and like straight to the one thing that's in their path. And it was only later on in life, uh, when I was in my early 20s and got my uh, motorcycle license to ride on the road, um, that I learned that actually this is a thing. <laughs> that to be on a motorcycle and go where you want to go and to avoid the thing that you're afraid of hitting, you need to not look at the thing that you're afraid of hitting. You got to look where you want to go and away from that thing. See, fear often keeps us from looking at the right thing and going in the right direction. I think that's what's happening in this text with Moses. Because when the God of the universe meets Moses on Mount Horeb and calls him to be the deliverer of his people, Moses is afraid. And no wonder, if you think back to Moses' life 80 years ago, uh, Moses miraculously escaped genocide. <laughs> And then 40 years after that, he escaped Pharaoh's vengeance when he had this kind of misadventure in trying to accomplish justice by his own hands. And now God says to him, Moses, I've chosen you to be the deliverer of my people. I think Moses feels 
utterly inadequate for the task. I think Moses is overwhelmed and afraid. And in his fear, where does Moses look? Does he look upward to God and the revelation of Yahweh who is sufficient and powerful and good? No. In his fear, Moses gaze drifts further and further away from God to look at what comes naturally, to look at himself, to have his eyes full of his own inadequacy and insufficiency. QR passage. Because in this passage, what we see, I think, more than anything else, is that God is at work in Moses' life. In a particular way, he's at work drawing Moses, but also, I think, us. This is where we need to hear it for us as well. To turn from trusting in ourselves, turn from the fear that we have that we are inadequate, and to turn towards God to trust that he, in and of himself, is sufficient to meet our every need. It's what God's doing, showing his sufficiency to Moses in all the areas that he has fear and feels inadequate. We're going to see that in five different areas. We're going to have a five-point sermon this morning. Um, we usually have three pointers, I know, um, but we're going to break the norm. And uh, we'll look at five different areas where God draws Moses and his eyes away from what he fears towards him in trusting faith. We're going to look at the way that God does that in regard to the suffering of his people in Egypt. In regard to the opposition of Pharaoh that Moses is worried about. In regard to the resources that Israel will need as a new nation leaving Egypt. In regard to the unbelief of the Egyptians and Moses feeling fearful that he can even convince them to release his people. And even in regard to Moses' own weaknesses and Moses' own sin. We'll see that in this passage. And we'll start right away by unpacking the first point and how God draws Moses to trust God's sufficiency to provide for the suffering of his Israelite people. Let's look at chapter 3 and verses 16 to 17 with me as we begin. So God speaks to Moses and he says, Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, remember capital L-O-R-D, means Yahweh. It's the translation in English of, of Yahweh, the, the name of God who's revealed himself to Moses, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Say to them, the Lord Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. So God commands Moses after he appears to him, go gather the elders of Israel and tell them what I, Yahweh, the God of their fathers, have said to you. What did God say? You can boil it down to this. I promise Tell them that I promise, that I have made a promise, that my promise is enough. And what is his promise? His promise in these verses we see is to bring his people from the land of affliction to the land that he promised to the Israelite forefathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to a land that he describes as a land that is flowing with milk and honey. 
So flowing with milk and honey, strange imagery. Um, I was thinking about this and I thought, man, whenever my table flows with milk or honey, I'm not super pumped about it. Like, kids, wipe up your mess. It's actually me. I just blame them. Sorry. Um, but we're not meant to picture literal sticky rivers of honey and milk by these words. What these words are meant to communicate, and whenever you read them in the Hebrew Bible, what they're meant to communicate is abundance. It's richness. It's flourishing. It's this great wealth of the land that God had promised. Honey here in Hebrew actually doesn't mean honey as we think about honey. It means the, the nectar that's collected from dates and made of this sticky substance. And dates are this crop that was like this key representation of wealth in the ancient world. If you want to know if a place is wealthy, look and see if they have date honey. And milk, similarly, it's a product of the abundant herds of cows and goats and sheep, which were the symbol of wealth and of flourishing and abundance in the ancient world. So what's going on here is this. Where Moses and the elders see only their overwhelming suffering in the land of affliction, God meets their suffering by pointing to himself. By saying, don't look to the suffering. Trust in me and my promise to meet your suffering with abundance. Trust in my promise to meet your need with abundance. And I think, friends, I think that this is the same invitation that God has for us this morning in our own places of suffering. We've talked about this a few times, but we'll talk about it again just briefly here. I think the invitation that we see in this passage already is that we, like Moses, are invited to turn to God and to trust in his provisions and his promise And to cry out to him in our suffering that he's enough. To cry out to him in our suffering, trusting that his promise is sufficient to meet our need. And we can do that in the knowledge that God is a God who is faithful to his every promise in Scripture. So what happens after this promise made to this people? Well, they're delivered from Egypt, according to his promise. They go to the promised land. They receive the land that God gave them according to his promise promise. And more than that, far down the road, what has God done? He has sent Jesus as our Savior according to his promise. And we can be confident that he will fulfill then every promise that he has made to us and the certainty of what we see in Jesus. Because Christ has died. Christ has already been risen. And we can be confident that he will surely come again. So if suffering's filling your vision this morning, I want to speak to you just for a minute. I want to beg with you, beg you not to let your suffering drive you off course in your obedience to God. But instead to look to Jesus, to trust his promise, to meet your need. But Moses, of course, didn't just feel overwhelmed and afraid because of the suffering of his people. Moses also felt inadequate to deal with Pharaoh. And no wonder. He's the ruler of the ancient world, the most powerful one in Egypt, the most powerful country at the time. So look at our next point in the opposition of Pharaoh that God now speaks to uh, in verses 18 to 20. And God says to Moses, And they will listen to your voice, the elders. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please, let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice the Lord our God. 
And what does God say? But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. And so I will stretch out my hand and I will strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. That word wonders is an interesting one in Hebrew. And it's not so much that the, the things that are done are wonderful. It's that those who see them just stand astonished and in awe at the power and the strength of God. See, God knows that Pharaoh will refuse Moses' request unless he's compelled by a mighty hand. But God doesn't say, all right, Moses, that's it. Go to the gym. Get a mightier hand. Start working out. You know, you can do this. You're enough. Work hard. No, God doesn't tell Moses that. God tells Moses to trust not in himself, but in him. To trust the mighty hand of God. To trust that God's words are true. I will stretch out my hand. I will strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, they will let you go. See, against the greatest force on earth at the time, God promises his confrontation and his devastating victory based on his power. It's an interesting image, the idea of the outstretched arm. Actually, in the ancient world, uh, this is a common sign. I have a slide of a couple of the different depictions. Um, and you can see uh, a number of these here. This is Zeus here. This is, um, I think, Marduk, Marduk from the ancient world of Mesopotamia. And then, or no, other way, this is Marduk, and this is uh, Pharaoh. And what you don't see in the top right, actually, is that the relief is missing one block, but that's where Pharaoh's smiting hand was with the rod to crush his enemies. And so in this passage, God is revealing himself in direct confrontation with Moses and all the gods that Moses represented. He's saying, against Moses, I am Yahweh. Against the gods of Egypt, I will smite them with all of my wonders. I am God and they are not. And all will be astounded and awed by my works. In Christ City, there's something here for us because the reality is that you and I have lots of enemies in our lives. And not even necessarily a specific person. Maybe we have one or two of those as well. But maybe it's just more general. We have the enemies of the reality that we struggle against enemies in our lives, against the powers of Satan, his evil deception in this world, against the powers of wickedness and evil that are in this world, against maybe our own sin in our lives that, that's too much for us to conquer, against the reality of death and suffering that's just way bigger than anything that we can handle. And in this passage, I think the invitation of God is to stop trusting in our strength and our arm to deliver us from these enemies, but to look to God. To trust that he is able. So I'm wondering, are, are you overwhelmed maybe this morning by all that stands against you in your life as you follow Jesus? Just so many obstacles, so many enemies, so many things in your way. Don't look to you. 
Look to him. Don't look to you. Look to him. Look to Jesus who's conquered Satan and sin and death by his death and resurrection. Look to Jesus who offers his victory to you. Will you accept it this morning? Will you run to him in trusting faith? See, God invites Moses to look to him for Israel's suffering, to look to him for the problem of Pharaoh, but also to trust him with the basic, uh, basic resources that Israel would need as a new nation and that Moses, I don't think, has even considered yet. Look at verses 21 and 22. God continues, says, I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. I will give this people, these slaves, favor in the sight of the Egyptians. So that when you go, you shall not go empty. God's going to work a miracle. He says, each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold and jewelry and for clothing. Can I have some gold on my way out of here, neighbor? And you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. This is the only voluntary plundering of a nation that I think we have in the history of the world. And I'm amazed by what God speaks to Moses here. Because in my need, when I faced difficulty or things that overwhelmed me, usually I can see one problem. You know how that is? You can see one problem ahead of you. Right? There might be eight, but you just got the one and it fills your vision. But here God's speaking to Moses in a way that's meeting Moses' needs, pointing to God's own sufficiency against Moses' inadequacy, but anticipating needs that Moses hasn't even thought about yet. Because what would a newborn nation that's enslaved for 440 years and has no opportunity to accumulate wealth for itself, what would they need as they take their first steps as an infant nation? They'd need some capital. They'd need some resources. And God says, where you have lack that you've not yet considered, I will provide for you. And you will plunder the Egyptians through a miracle of my grace. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that amazing? And again, I think in the same way that God provides for Israel wealth from Egypt, this same God, he knows your needs this morning as well. That's the encouragement all over scripture to trust that this God is a good father who loves us, who sees our need and cares for us deeply. There's great concern for his children. That's why Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6 to cry out to, to this God, give us this day our daily bread. But to cry out in the confidence that our Heavenly Father already knows what our needs are before we ask them. That He is a God of providence who cares for us. And in His love, He will provide all that we need. Just wanted to read Psalm 34, verses 8 to 10. These are three verses that I think capture who God is and His love and care for us. And they're some of my favorites in Scripture. And it says this I want you to hear it and, and just hear the call to you in your own life. Christ City, taste. And see that the Lord Yahweh is good. And blessed is the man or the woman who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. 
And then look at our next point. Notice Moses' next words to God. He's overwhelmed by the idea of standing before Pharaoh and his entourage. He's like, how on earth will I be able, Moses of Midian, to convince this great empire to let these slaves go? I can't do it. Moses says in verses 1 to 9 of chapter 4, Moses answers, but behold, they will not believe me. God, you don't get it. I mean, it's pretty cool you're here with me at Mount Horeb. They're not going to believe that this happened. And they're not going to listen to my voice. And they'll say, the Lord did not appear to you. And the Lord said to him, Moses, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. He said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. (laughs) It's pretty comical. Like, ah, you chained her to a snake. (laughs) You know, I'm not afraid of you yet, God, but I'm afraid of the snake. You know? But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and he caught it and it became a staff in his hand. And then God says, and he explains, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. And again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak, Moses. Moses puts his hand inside his cloak. What am I going to find there? You know, something cool, a little present maybe. When he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Not the trick he thought was going to happen. And then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside the cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. And they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice. You shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. So Moses is afraid. I'm going to go to the court of Pharaoh and look, God, they're not going to get it. They're not going to believe me. And what does God do? How does God meet Moses' need? Where Moses feels inadequate to persuade, God provides Moses with three powerful signs. Powerful signs not because they're shaking the foundations of Egypt, but powerful because of what they point to and what they represent. The signs that God gave Moses, they are awesome in what they communicate and what the Egyptians would have understood about what they communicate. So let me explain them to you. First of all, the staff to serpent and back sign, it's a sign that's meant to show God's sovereign power over the serpent. But the serpent's a really interesting thing in Egyptian culture. As we've talked about before, and if you've remembered any pharaohs from Egypt or, or their crowns, there is a serpent on their crown. This is a serpent that has a name. Uh, it's called the Uraeus. And the serpent representation is actually what the Egyptians believed was representational of their god, Ammon, and their god, Ray, as they came together and were united in one. Kind of like Power Rangers, you know, come together, united in one, to become the most powerful deity. And it's represented in this serpent. So the snake in the hand of Moses, right, his staff, his snake, grabs it with the tail, comes the staff again. That's the biggest put down that Moses could have done in the court of Pharaoh. He's saying, look, you think your gods are so powerful. This is who Yahweh is. Pharaoh and the gods that he represents are nothing but a staff in the hand of Yahweh, the God of Jacob and Abraham and Isaac. 
The sign of leprosy in a similar way, it was meant to overwhelm Egypt with the power of Yahweh. Because the Egyptians considered that leprosy and diseases like it were incurable. They had no power over leprosy, no power over death. Their gods had no power over leprosy, no power over death. But where they have no power over disease and death, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, does. It's a revelation of his power to them. In a similar way, as these first two, and the final sign, they're kind of escalating in, in their significance, is a sign of the water from the Nile that's turned to blood. If you think of the Nile River even today, and you look at a Google Maps picture of Egypt or Google Earth, where is there life in Egypt? Close to the Nile, and only close to the Nile. And what happened is that there's a God, Happy, wasn't so happy when he met Yahweh, um, was representational of life through the Nile, right? So there's deity in the Nile. The Nile is a symbol of, symbol of the gods and the life that they give to Egypt. And yet here is Yahweh saying, what you depend on for life, I can turn to death. My power is sovereign over even the Nile River and the gods it represents. I think this is so significant to look at the way that God provides his power where Moses felt inadequate to persuade. Because how often in our own lives do we rely on our power of persuasion to share about Jesus with others? How often do we put all of our trust in my ability to get the job done? in this conversation. Man, it's, this is what I do all the time. And yet, do you know that the spirit of Yahweh dwells within you? If you are a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, he's with you. He is in you. And he's promised to provide all that is needed as you speak about him obediently to other people. When's the last time you've taken a step of faith and gone into some conversation just trusting in the power of Yahweh to lead the conversation? Don't trust in your ability. Look to God who is in you and who is with you. See, God's, proving, God's proving himself in all these ways to be sufficient to meet Moses' inadequacy. And yet in this last section... God reveals his sufficiency to meet a need Moses, I don't think, realized he had. Turn to consider with me the last point, the way God meets Moses' weakness and his sin with his own sufficiency. And look at verses 10 to 17. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. It's interesting. There's a lot of debate in the commentaries about this passage because as we know, Moses was educated in Egypt, right? He had all the education afforded to him that like, the very best education that anyone at that time ever could have had given to him. So in some ways, the commentators look at that, they, they, they say that this can't be true. It can't be a true excuse. Maybe it's just a hyperbolic excuse. Oh, I'm not eloquent. God's like, I prepared you already for this task, Moses. 
We don't really know, though. Maybe there was some kind of a speech impediment or a weakness in Moses. And we'll see in a second. It's kind of besides the point. But there's a lot of discussion about this. We'll pick it up in verse 11. Then the Lord said to him, Moses, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But Moses says, oh my Lord, please send someone else. And then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people and he shall be your mouth and you shall be as God to him. And take in your staff and take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. Moses asked a lot of questions of God on Mount Horeb. I think it was an invitation and encouragement to us in our own walk with God to ask questions, to wrestle with him. But in these last questions, I think what we see is that Moses' heart is hardening into unbelief. He's going the wrong direction. He's driving the motorcycle into the obstacle. <laughs> and how does God respond in that moment in Moses' life? Moses says, I'm not eloquent, God. And whether that's real or that's not, God simply proclaims his absolute power over the frailty of the human form. Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, Moses, go, obey me, and I will be with your mouth, and I'll teach you what you shall speak. What a reminder, Christ City. What a confrontation. How often in our lives where we're called to obey God, do we look only to our weakness? Do we trust in ourselves and our smallness and what we're unable to do rather than looking to the one who made us, to the God who is with us? See, all that matters for Moses and for you and me is simply to trust and to obey God. To trust that he is sufficient to provide all that we need. But even after this confrontation, Moses pushes more and he moves from, I can't do it, God, to, you know, God, I won't do it. And verse 13 says, oh my Lord, please send someone else. Just move on to someone else. And in verse 14, we're surprised, I think, when we read, then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. You got to ask why. It's because, as we've said, the heart of Moses was turning from God and faith and was moving to a fixed position and looking at his own inadequacy, fixing his eyes in fear and unbelief on disobedience rather than trusting in God's sufficiency for him. And what does God do? God in his love confronts Moses in his anger. What amazes me is how God used the anger in this story not to push Moses away, 
but actually to draw Moses to himself and to bring him to his knees and surrender. So I want to just stop together with you and think about this for a minute. Consider God's wisdom and how he deals with Moses. Look at what he's done here. Because on Mount Horeb, God called Moses to participate in his purposes of life and redemption. Moses, there's a big plan I have for you. It's glorious and good. I'm going to fill the world with life. Free the Israelites. It's going to be great. And first, God draws Moses into this plan by wooing him with his tender love. This revelation of who he is as God. By demonstrating how he and himself is sufficient to meet every need and every need of the people one step at a time. You can trust me, Moses. And yet when Moses' fear leads him to sinful unbelief, to turn away from God, God reveals his anger to Moses. And he does it for a purpose. He does it to confront Moses' sin. He does it to move Moses to humble obedience. He does it to draw Moses toward the fullness of life that he desires for him in relationship with himself. In Christ's city, it worked. You know that Moses in the Bible, especially the first half of the Bible, he's the paradigm of a good relationship with God that's held out for God's people. This intimacy and deep relationship that Moses goes on to have with this God, serving him and being used by him. But this could have been the moment that Moses walked away from God. And that teaches us something about our relationship with God that we must wrestle with in this text. And it's this. Hear this, Christ City. If you hear nothing else this morning, hear this. If we're to enjoy true fullness of life in relationship with God, if we're to receive his love, we must first be brought to our knees in recognition of his just anger against our sin. If we're to receive the life and the love that he has for us, we must come to our knees in repentance for our sin. It's got to happen first. But for us, that doesn't happen at Mount Horeb. It happens at a different mountain, Golgotha, where Jesus was crucified. Because it's at the cross of Jesus that we see with the greatest clarity, both the fullness of God's just anger toward our sin and the fullness of his love to save us. Both those things meet at the cross. Because what do our sins deserve? What could pay the price before a holy God that would reconcile us to himself? The cross shows us. The cross shows that the price of our sin was that God himself, the person of Jesus Christ, would have to die to pay the debt of our sin. What can wash away our sin and remove God's righteous judgment from us? As the song says, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. But the cross also shows us something else. It shows us the fullness of God's love for us. Because what do we see on the cross? Who do we see on the cross? We see God himself in the person of Jesus freely choosing in his great love for us to die for us. We see God himself saying, I will give my life so that they can live. 
I love them so much that I will die that they can be forgiven. See, Christ City, before Moses could be used by God to conquer Egypt, God had to first conquer Moses' heart. And he begins to do that work here at Mount Horeb. But friends, the greatest place that God does the work of conquering human hearts is on the cross. As he shows us all that he's done in love for us to save us. As he works through that cross to draw, draw our eyes from ourselves, to fix our eyes firmly on him, to trust that he alone is savior, to trust that he is enough so we will step forward in obedience. So today, here's the question. I'm wondering this, where is it in your life that you only see your insufficiency? Where is it in your life that you only see your inadequacy? Where is it in your life where you only see your weakness or your sin or your suffering or where you're just so full of fear or you're full of the obstacle that stands against you in your walk with Jesus? Even in maybe stepping towards Jesus to put your faith in him for the first time. Don't look to you. Look to him. Don't look to you. Look to Jesus. Jesus is enough. Jesus has died and he has risen and he will come again and he is your savior. So where is it that he's calling you to step out in faith and obedience this week? Will you pray with me? Yeah, God, we come before you and we come confessing that we often look at the wrong thing. Lord, we often drive our lives into the ditch because all we're looking at is the ditch. And yet here, God, we see that in your love for us, you've called us to yourself. You revealed your fullness to us. You're showing us that you are sufficient. You're enough to cover every weakness, every sin, every obstacle. And you're enough because Jesus has done all that is needed. Lord, would you cause us to rest in him this morning, to put our confidence in him, to lift our eyes from ourselves, to trust in him, to worship him, to obey him, to love him, to serve him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.